Book Six, Chapter Two of the Brothers Karamazov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Neufeld. The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. Book Six, Chapter Two. Section C. Recollections of Father Zosima's Youth Before He Became a Monk The Duel I spent a long time, almost eight years, in a military cadet school at Petersburg, and in the novelty of my surroundings there, many of my childish impressions grew dimmer, though I forgot nothing. I picked up so many new habits and opinions that I was transformed into a cruel, absurd, almost savage creature. A surface polish of courtesy and society manners I did acquire together with the French language. But we all, myself included, looked upon the soldiers in our service as cattle. I was perhaps worse than the rest in that respect, for I was so much more impressionable than my companions. By the time we left the school as officers, we were ready to lay down our lives for the honor of the regiment but no one of us had any knowledge of the real meaning of honor, and if any one had known it, he would have been the first to ridicule it. Drunkenness, debauchery, and devilry were what we almost prided ourselves on. I don't say that we were bad by nature. All these young men were good fellows, but they behaved badly, and I worst of all. What made it worse for me was that I had come into my own money, and so I flung myself into a life of pleasure, and plunged headlong into all the recklessness of youth. I was fond of reading, yet strange to say the Bible was the one book I never opened at that time, though I always carried it about with me, and I was never separated from it. In very truth, I was keeping that book for the day and the hour, for the month and the year, though I knew it not. After four years of this life, I chanced to be in the town of K, where our regiment was stationed at the time. We found the people of the town hospitable, rich, and fond of entertainments. I met with a cordial reception everywhere, as I was of a lively temperament, and was known to be well off, which always goes a long way in the world. And then a circumstance happened which was the beginning of it all. I formed an attachment to a beautiful and intelligent young girl of noble and lofty character, the daughter of people much respected. They were well-to-do people of influence and position. They always gave me a cordial and friendly reception. I fancied that the young lady looked on me with favor, and my heart was aflame at such an idea. Later on I saw and fully realized that I was perhaps not so passionately in love with her at all, but only recognized the elevation of her mind and character which I could not indeed have helped doing. I was prevented, however, from making her an offer at the time by my selfishness. I was loath to part with the allurements of my free and licentious bachelor life in the heyday of my youth, and with my pockets full of money. I did drop some hint as to my feelings, however, though I put off taking any decisive step for a time. Then all of a sudden we were ordered off for two months to another district. On my return two months later I found the young lady already married, to a rich neighboring landowner, 
a very amiable man, still young, though older than I was, connected with the best Petersburg society, which I was not, and of excellent education, which I also was not. I was so overwhelmed at this unexpected circumstance that my mind was positively clouded. The worst of it all was that, as I learned then, the young landowner had been a long while betrothed to her, and I had met him indeed many times in her house, but blinded by my conceit I had noticed nothing, and this particularly mortified me. Almost everybody had known all about it, while I knew nothing. I was filled with sudden irrepressible fury. With flushed face I began recalling how often I had been on the point of declaring my love to her, and she had not attempted to stop me or to warn me, so she must, I concluded, have been laughing at me all the time. Later on, of course, I reflected and remembered that she had been very far from laughing at me. On the contrary, she used to turn off any love-making on my part with a jest, and begin talking of other subjects. But at that moment I was incapable of reflecting, and was all eagerness for revenge. I am surprised to remember that my wrath and revengeful feelings were extremely repugnant to my nature, for being of an easy temper, I found it difficult to be angry with anyone for long, and so I had to work myself up artificially, and became at last revolting and absurd. I waited for an opportunity, and succeeded in insulting my rival in the presence of a large company. I insulted him on a perfectly extraneous pretext, jeering at his opinion upon an important public event. It was in the year 1826. My jeer was, so people said, clever and effective. Then I forced him to ask for an explanation, and behaved so rudely that he accepted my challenge in spite of the vast inequality between us. As I was younger, a person of no consequence, and of inferior rank. I learned afterwards for a fact that it was from a jealous feeling on his side also that my challenge was accepted. He had been rather jealous of me on his wife's account before their marriage. He fancied now that if he submitted to be insulted by me, and refused to accept my challenge, and if she heard of it, she might begin to despise him and waver in her love for him. I soon found a second in a comrade, an ensign of our regiment. In those days, though, duels were severely punished, yet dueling was a kind of fashion among the officers, so strongly and deeply rooted will a brutal prejudice sometimes be. It was the end of June, and our meeting was to take place at seven o'clock the next day on the outskirts of town. And then something happened that in very truth was the turning point of my life. In the evening, returning home in a savage and brutal humor, I flew into a rage with my orderly, Afanasi, and gave him two blows in the face with all my might, so that it was covered with blood. He had not long been in my service, and I had struck him before, but never with such ferocious cruelty. And believe me, though it's forty years ago, I recall it now with shame and pain. I went to bed and slept for about three hours. When I woke up, the day was breaking. I got up. I did not want to sleep any more. I went to the window, opened it. I looked out upon the garden. I saw the sun rising. It was warm and beautiful. The birds were singing. What's the meaning of it? I thought. 
I feel in my heart, as it were, something vile and shameful. Is it because I'm going to shed blood? No, I thought. I feel it's not that. Can it be that I am afraid of death, afraid of being killed? No, that's not it. That's not it at all. And all at once I knew what it was. It was because I had beaten Afanasi the evening before. It all rose before my mind. It all was, as it were, repeated over again. He stood before me, and I was beating him straight on the face, and he was holding his arms stiffly down, his head erect, his eyes fixed upon me as though on parade. He staggered at every blow and did not even dare to raise his hands to protect himself. This is what a man has been brought to, and that was a man beating a fellow creature. What a crime! It was as though a sharp dagger had pierced me right through. I stood as if I were struck dumb, while the sun was shining, the leaves were rejoicing, and the birds were churling the praise of God. I hid my face in my hands, fell on my bed, and broke into a storm of tears. And then I remembered my brother Marco, and what he said on his deathbed to his servants. My dear one, why do you wait on me? Why do you love me? Am I worth your waiting on me? Yes, am I worth it, flashed through my mind. After all, what am I worth, that another man, a fellow creature, made in the likeness and image of God, should serve me? For the first time in my life this question forced itself upon me. He had said, Mother, my little heart, in truth we are each responsible to all, for all. It's only that men don't know this. If they knew it, the world would be a paradise at once. God, can that too be false? I thought as I wept. In truth, perhaps, I am more than all others responsible for all, a greater sinner than all men in the world. And all at once the whole truth in its full light appeared to me. And what was I going to do? I was going to kill a good, clever, noble man who had done me no wrong, and by depriving his wife of happiness for the rest of her life, I should be torturing and killing her too. I lay thus in my bed, with my face in the pillow, heedless how the time was passing. Suddenly my second, the ensign, came in with the pistols to fetch me. Ah, he said, it's a good thing you're up already. It's time we were off. Come along. I did not know what to do, and hurried to and fro undecided. We went out to the carriage, however. Wait here a minute, I said. I'll be back directly. I, I, I've forgotten my purse. And I ran back alone to Afanasi's little room. Afanasi, I gave you two blows on the face yesterday. Forgive me, I said. He started as though he were frightened, and looked at me, and I saw that it was not enough. And on the spot, in my full officer's uniform, I dropped at his feet and bowed my head to the ground. Forgive me, I said. Then he was completely aghast. Your Honor, sir, what are you doing? Am I worth it? And he burst out crying as I had done before, hid his face in his hands, and turned the window and shook all over with his sobs. 
I flew out to my comrade and jumped into the carriage. Ready, I cried. Have you ever seen a conqueror? I asked him. Here is one before you. I was in ecstasy, laughing and talking all the way. I, I don't remember what about. He looked at me. Well, brother, you are a plucky fellow. You'll keep up the honor of the uniform, I can see. So we reached the place and found them there waiting for us. We were placed twelve paces apart. He had the first shot. I stood gaily, looking him full in the face. I did not twitch an eyelash. I looked lovingly at him, for I knew what I would do. His shot just grazed my cheek and ear. Thank God, I cried, no man has been killed, and I seized my pistol, turned back and flung it far away into the wood. That's the place for you, I cried. I turned to my adversary. Forgive me, young fool that I am, sir, I said, for my unprovoked insult to you and for forcing you to fire at me. I am ten times worse than you, and more, maybe. Tell that to the person whom you hold dearest in the world. I had no sooner said this than they all three shouted at me. "'Upon my word!' cried my adversary, annoyed. "'If you did not want a fight, why did you not let me alone?' "'Yesterday I was a fool. Today I know better,' I answered him gaily. "'As to yesterday, I believe you. But as for today, it is difficult to agree with your opinion,' said he. "'Bravo!' I cried, clapping my hands. "'I agree with you there, too.' I have deserved it. Will you shoot, sir, or not? No, I won't, I said. If you like, fire at me again. But it would be better for you not to fire. The seconds, especially mine, were shouting too. Can you disgrace the regiment like this, facing your antagonist and begging his forgiveness? If I'd only known this. I stood facing them all, not laughing now. Gentlemen, I said. Is it really so wonderful in these days to find a man who can repent of his stupidity and publicly confess his wrongdoing? But not in a duel, cried my second again. That's what's so strange, I said, for I ought to have owned my fault as soon as I got here, before he had fired a shot, before leading him into a great and deadly sin. But we have made our world so grotesque that to act in that way would have been almost impossible. For only after I faced his shot at a distance of twelve paces could my words have any significance for him. And if I had spoken before, he would have said, He is a coward. The sight of the pistols has frightened him. No use to listen to him. Gentlemen, I cried suddenly, speaking straight from my heart, look around you at the gifts of God, the clear sky, the pure air, the tender grass, the birds. Nature is beautiful and sinless. And we, only we, are sinful and foolish. And we don't understand that life is heaven. For we have only to understand that. And it will at once be fulfilled in all its beauty. We shall embrace each other and weep. I would have said more, but I could not. My voice broke with the sweetness and youthful gladness of it. And there was such bliss in my heart as I have never known before in my life. Oh, this is rational and edifying, said my antagonist. And in any case, you are an original person. You may laugh, I said to him, laughing too, but afterwards you will approve of me. Oh, I am ready to approve of you now, said he. Will you shake hands? 
for I believe you are genuinely sincere. No, I said, not now. Later on, when I have grown worthier and deserve your esteem, then shake hands, and you will do well. We went home, my second abrading me all the way, while I kissed him. All my comrades heard of the affair at once, then gathered together to pass judgment on me the same day. He has disgraced the uniform, they said. Let him resign his commission. Some stood up for me. He faced a shot, they said. Yes, but he was afraid of his other shot, and begged for forgiveness. If he had been afraid of being shot, he would have shot his own pistol first before asking forgiveness, while he flung it loaded into the forest. No, there's something else in this, something original. I enjoyed listening and looking at them. My dear friends and comrades, said I, don't worry about my resigning my commission, for I have done so already. I have sent in my papers this morning, and as soon as I get my discharge, I shall go into a monastery. It's with that object I am leaving the regiment. When I had said this, every one of them burst out laughing. <laughs> you, you should have told us of that first. That explains everything. We can't judge a monk. They laughed and could not stop themselves, and not scornfully, but kindly and merrily. They all felt friendly to me at once, even those who had been sternest in their censure, and all the following month, before my discharge came, they could not make enough of me. Ah, you monk, they would say, and everyone said something kind to me. They began trying to dissuade me, even to pity me. What are you doing to yourself? No, they would say, he is a brave fellow. He faced fire, and could have fired his own pistol too, but he had a dream the night before that he should become a monk. That's why he did it. It was the same thing with the society of the town. Till then I had been kindly received, but had not been the object of special attention. And now all came to know me at once and invited me. They laughed at me, and they loved me. I may mention that although everybody talked openly of our duel, the authorities took no notice of it, because my antagonist was a near relation of our general, and as there had been no bloodshed and no serious consequences, and as I resigned my commission, they took it as a joke. And I began then to speak aloud and fearlessly, regardless of their laughter, for it was always kindly and not spiteful laughter. Those conversations mostly took place in the evenings, in the company of ladies. Women particularly liked listening to me then, and they made the men listen. But how can I possibly be responsible for all? Everyone would laugh in my face. Can I, for instance, be responsible for you? You may well not know it, I would answer, since the whole world has long been going on a different line, since we consider the various lies as truth and demand the same lies from others. Here I have for once in my life acted sincerely, and, well, you all look upon me as a madman. Though you are friendly to me, yet, you see, you all laugh at me. But how can we help being friendly to you? said my hostess, laughing. The room was full of people. All of a sudden, the young lady rose, on whose account the duel had been fought, and whom only lately I had intended to be my future wife. I had not noticed her coming into the room. She got up, came to me, and held out my hand. Let me tell you, she said, that I am the first not to laugh at you, but on the contrary I thank you with tears and express my respect for you 
for your action then. Her husband too came up, and then they all approached me and almost kissed me. My heart was filled with joy, but my attention was especially caught by a middle-aged man who came up to me with the others. I knew him by name already, but had never made his acquaintance, nor exchanged a word with him till that evening. Section D. The Mysterious Visitor He had long been an official in the town. He was in a prominent position, respected by all, rich, and had a reputation for benevolence. He subscribed considerable sums to the almshouse and the orphan asylum. He was very charitable, too, in secret, a fact which only became known after his death. He was a man of about fifty, almost stern in appearance and not much given to conversation. He had been married about ten years, and his wife, who was still young, had borne him three children. Well, I was sitting alone in my room the following evening, when my door suddenly opened, and this gentleman walked in. I must mention, by the way, that I was no longer living in my former quarters. As soon as I resigned my commission, I took rooms with an old lady, the widow of a government clerk. My landlady's servant waited upon me, for I had moved into her room simply because on my return from the jewel I had sent Afanasi back to the regiment, as I was ashamed to look him in the face after my first interview with him. So prone is the man of the world to be ashamed of any righteous action. I have, said my visitor, with great interest listened to you speaking in different houses the last few days, and I wanted at last to make your personal acquaintance, so as to talk to you more intimately. Can you, dear sir, grant me this favor? I can with the greatest pleasure, and shall look upon it as an honor. I said this, though I felt almost dismayed, so greatly was I impressed from the first moment by the appearance of this man. For though other people had listened to me with interest and attention, no one had come to me before with such a serious, stern, and concentrated expression. And now he had come to see me in my own rooms. He sat down. You are, I see, a man of great strength of character, he said, as you have dared to serve the truth, even when by doing so you risked incurring the contempt of all. Your praise is perhaps excessive, I replied. No, it's not excessive, he answered. Believe me, such a course of action is far more difficult than you think. It is that which has impressed me, and it is only on that account that I have come to you, he continued. Tell me, please, that is if you are not annoyed by my perhaps unseemly curiosity, what were your exact sensations, if you can recall them, at the moment when you made up your mind to ask forgiveness at the duel? Do not think my question frivolous. On the contrary, I have in asking the question a secret motive of my own, which I will perhaps explain to you later on, if it is God's will that we should have become more intimately acquainted. All the while he was speaking, I was looking at him straight into the face, and felt all at once a complete trust in him, and great curiosity on my side also, for I felt there was some strange secret in his soul. You ask what were my exact sensations at the moment when I asked my opponent's forgiveness, I answered. But I had better tell you from the beginning what I have not yet told anyone else. And I described all that had passed between Afanasi and me, and how I had bowed down to the ground at his feet. From that you can see for yourself, I concluded, 
that at the time of the duel it was easier for me, for I had made a beginning already at home, and when once I had started on that road, to go further along it was far from being difficult, but came as a source of joy and happiness. I liked the way he looked at me as he listened. All that, he said, is exceedingly interesting. I will come to see you again and again. And from that time forth he came to see me nearly every evening, and we should have become greater friends if only he had talked of himself, but about himself he scarcely ever said a word, yet continually asked me about myself. In spite of that, I became very fond of him, and spoke with perfect frankness to him about all my feelings. For, thought I, what need have I to know his secrets, since I can see without that that he is a good man? Moreover, though he is such a serious man and my senior, he comes to see a youngster like me, and treats me as his equal. And I learned a great deal that was profitable from him, for he was a man of lofty mind. That life is heaven, he said to me suddenly, that I have long been thinking about. And all at once, he added, I think of nothing else, indeed. He looked at me and smiled. I am more convinced of it than you are. I will tell you later why. I listened to him and thought he evidently wanted to tell me something. Heaven, he went on, lies hidden within all of us. Here it lies hidden in me now, and if I will it, it will be revealed to me tomorrow and for all time. I looked at him. He was speaking with great emotion and gazing mysteriously at me as if he were questioning me. And that we are all responsible to all for all, apart from our own sins, you are quite right in thinking that. And it is wonderful how you could comprehend it in all its significance at once. And in very truth, so soon as men understand that, the kingdom of heaven will be for them not a dream, but a living reality. And when, I cried to him bitterly, when will that come to pass? And will it ever come to pass? Is not it simply a dream of ours? What then? You don't believe it, he said? You preach it and don't believe it yourself? Believe me, this dream, as you call it, will come to pass without doubt. It will come, but not now, for every process has its law. It's a spiritual, psychological process. To transform the world, to recreate it afresh, men must turn into another path psychologically, until you have become really, in actual fact, a brother to everyone. Brotherhood will not come to pass. No sort of scientific teaching, no kind of common interest, will ever teach men to share property and privileges with equal consideration for all. Everyone will think his share too small, and they will always be envying, complaining, and attacking one another. You ask when it will come to pass. It will come to pass, but first we have to go through the period of isolation. What do you mean by isolation? I asked him. Why, the isolation that prevails everywhere, above all in our age. It has not fully developed, and has not reached its limit yet. For everyone strives to keep his individually as apart as possible, wishes to secure the greatest possible fullness of life for himself. But meantime all his efforts result not in attaining fullness of life, but self-destruction, for instead of self-realization he ends up arriving at complete solitude. All mankind in our age have split up into units. They all keep apart, each in his own groove, 
Each one holds aloof, hides himself, and hides what he has from the rest. And he ends by being repelled by others and repelling them. He heaps up riches by himself and thinks, How strong I am now and how secure! And in his madness he does not understand that the more he heaps up, the more he sinks into self-destructive impotence. For he is accustomed to rely upon himself alone, and to cut himself off from the whole. He has trained himself not to believe in the help of others, in men and in humanity, and only trembles for fear he should lose his money and the privileges that he has won for himself. Everywhere in these days men have, in their mockery, ceased to understand that the true security is to be found in social solidarity rather than isolated individual effort. But this terrible individualism must inevitably have an end, and all will suddenly understand how unnaturally they are separated from one another. It will be the spirit of the time, and people will marvel that they have sat so long in darkness without seeing the light. And then the sign of the Son of Man will be seen in the heavens. But until then, we must keep the banner flying. Sometimes, even if he has to do it alone and his conduct seems to be crazy, a man must set an example and so draw men's souls out of their solitude, and spur them to some act of brotherly love, that the great idea may not die. Our evenings one after another were spent in such stirring and fervent talk. I gave up society and visited my neighbors much less frequently. Besides, my vogue was somewhat over. I say this not as blame, for they still loved me and treated me good-humouredly. But there's no denying that fashion is a great power in society. I began to regard my serious visitor with admiration, for besides enjoying his intelligence, I began to perceive that he was brooding over some plan in his heart, and was preparing himself perhaps for a great deed. Perhaps he liked my not showing curiosity about his secret, not seeking to discover it by direct questions, nor by insinuation but I noticed at last that he seemed to show signs of wanting to tell me something. This had become quite evident, indeed about a month after he first began to visit me. Do you know, he said to me once, that people are very inquisitive about us in the town and wonder why I come to see you so often? Ah, but let them wonder, for soon all will be explained. Sometimes an extraordinary agitation would come over him, and almost always on such occasions he would get up and go away. Sometimes he would fix a long, piercing look upon me, and I thought, he will say something directly now. But he would suddenly begin talking of something ordinary and familiar. He often complained of headaches, too. One day, quite unexpectedly indeed, after he had been talking with great fervor for a long time, I saw him suddenly turn pale, and his face worked convulsively while he stared persistently at me. "'What's the matter?' I said. "'Do you feel ill?' He had just been complaining of headache. "'I... do you know... I... I murdered someone.' He said this, and smiled with a face as white as chalk. Why is he smiling? The thought flashed through my mind before I realized anything else. I, too, turned pale. "'What are you saying?' I cried. "'You see,' he said, with a pale smile, "'how much it has cost me to say the first word. "'Now I have said it. "'I feel I have taken the first step, and shall go on.' 
For a long while I could not believe him, and I did not believe him at that time, but only after he had been to see me three days running and told me all about it. I thought he was mad, but ended by being convinced, and to my great grief and amazement. His crime was a great and terrible one. Fourteen years before he had murdered the widow of a landowner, a wealthy and handsome young woman who had a house in our town. He fell passionately in love with her, declared this feeling, and tried to persuade her to marry him. But she had already given her heart to another man, an officer of noble birth and high rank in the service, who was at that time away at the front, though she was expecting him soon to return. She refused his offer, and begged him not to come and see her. After he had ceased to visit her, he took advantage of his knowledge of the house to enter at night through the garden by the roof, at great risk of discovery. But as often happens, a crime committed with extraordinary audacity is more successful than other. Entering the garret through the skylight, he went down the ladder, knowing that the door at the bottom of it was sometimes, through the negligence of the servants, left unlocked. He hoped to find it so, and so it was. He made his way in the dark in her bedroom, where a light was burning. As though on purpose, both her maids had gone off to a birthday party in the same street, without asking leave. The other servants slept in the servants' quarters, or in the kitchen on the ground floor. His passion flamed up at the sight of her asleep, and then vindictive, jealous anger took possession of his heart, and like a drunken man beside himself, he thrust a knife into her heart, so that she did not even cry out. Then with devilish and criminal cunning, he contrived that suspicion would fall on the servants. He was so base as to take her purse, to open her chest with keys from under her pillow, and to take some things from it, doing it all as it might have been done by an ignorant servant, leaving valuable papers and taking only money. He took some of the larger gold things, but left smaller articles that were ten times as valuable. He took with him, too, some things for himself as remembrances but of that later. Having done this awful deed, he returned by the way he had come. Neither the next day, when the alarm was raised, nor at any time after in his life did any one dream of suspecting that he was the criminal. No one indeed knew of his love for her, for he was always reserved and silent, and had no friend to whom he would have opened his heart. He was looked upon simply as an acquaintance, and not a very intimate one, of the murdered woman. As for the previous fortnight, he had not even visited her. A serf of hers called Pyotr was at once suspected, and every circumstance confirmed the suspicion. The man knew, indeed his mistress did not conceal the fact, that having to send one of her serfs as a recruit, she had decided to send him, as he had no relations, and his conduct was unsatisfactory. People had heard him angrily threatening to murder her when he was drunk in a tavern. Two days before her death he had run away, staying no one knew where in the town. The day after the murder he was found on the road leading out of town, dead drunk, with a knife in his pocket, and his right hand happened to be stained with blood. He declared that his nose had been bleeding, but no one believed him. The maids confessed that they had gone to a party, and that the street door had been left open till they returned. And a number of similar details came to light, throwing suspicion on the innocent servant. They arrested him, and he was tried for the murder. But a week after the arrest, the prisoner fell sick of a fever and died, unconscious in the hospital. There the matter ended, 
and the judges and the authorities and everyone in town remained convinced that the crime had been committed by no one but the servant who had died in the hospital. And after that, the punishment began. My mysterious visitor, now my friend, told me that at first he was not in the least troubled by pangs of conscience. He was miserable a long time, but not for that reason, only from regret that he had killed the woman he loved, that she was no more, that in killing her he had killed his love, while the fire of passion was still in his veins. But of the innocent blood he had shed, of the murder of a fellow creature, he scarcely thought. The thought that his victim might have become the wife of another man was insupportable to him, and so for a long time he was convinced in his conscience that he could not have acted otherwise. At first he was worried at the arrest of the servant, but his illness and death soon set his mind at rest, for the man's death was apparently, so he reflected at the time, not owing to his arrest or his fright, but a chill he had taken on the day he ran away when he had lain all night dead drunk on the damp ground. The theft of the money and other things troubled him little, for he argued that the theft had not been committed for gain but to avert suspicion. The sum stolen was small, and he shortly afterwards subscribed the whole of it and much more towards the funds for maintaining an almshouse in the town. He did this on purpose, to set his conscience at rest about the theft, and it's a remarkable fact that for a long time he really was at peace. He told me this himself. He entered then upon a career of great activity in the service, volunteered for a difficult and laborious duty which occupied him two years, and being a man of strong will, almost forgot the past. Whenever he recalled it, he tried not to think of it at all. He became active in philanthropy, too, founded and helped to maintain many institutions in the town, did a great deal in the two capitals, and in both Moscow and Petersburg was elected a member of philanthropic societies. At last, however, he began brooding over the past, and the strain of it was too much for him. It was retracted by a fine and intelligent girl, and soon after married her, hoping that marriage would dispel his lonely depression, and that by entering on a new life, and scrupulously doing his duty to his wife and children, he would escape from old memories altogether. But the very opposite of what he expected happened. He began, even in the first month of his marriage, to be continually fretted by the thought, My wife loves me, but what if she knew? When she first told him that she would soon bear him a child, he was troubled. I am giving life, but I have taken life. Children came. How do I love, teach, and educate them? How can I talk to them of virtue? I have shed blood. They were splendid children. He longed to caress them. And I can't look at their innocent, candid faces. I am unworthy. At last he began to be bitterly and ominously haunted by the blood of his murdered victim, by the young life he had destroyed, by the blood that had cried out for vengeance. He had begun to have awful dreams, but being a man of fortitude he bore his suffering a long time, thinking, I shall expiate everything by this secret agony. But that hope, too, was vain. The longer it went on, the more intense was his suffering. He was respected in society for his act of benevolence, though everyone was overawed by his stern and gloomy character. But the more he was respected, the more intolerable it was for him. He had confessed to me that he had thoughts of killing himself, but he began to be hunted by another idea. 
an idea which she had at first regarded as impossible and unthinkable, though at last it got such a hold on his heart that he could not shake it off. He dreamed of rising up, going out and confessing, in the face of all men, that he had committed murder. For three years this dream had pursued him, haunting him in different forms. At last he believed with his whole heart that if he confessed his crime, he would heal his soul and would be at peace forever. But this belief filled his heart with terror, for how could he carry it out? And then came what happened at my duel. Looking at you, I have made up my mind. I looked at him. Is it possible? I cried, clasping my hands, that such a trivial incident could give rise to a resolution in you? My resolution has been growing for the last three years, he answered, and your story only gave the last touch to it. Looking at you, I reproached myself and envied you. He said this to me, almost sullenly. But you won't be believed, I answered. It's fourteen years ago. I have proofs, great proofs. I shall show them. Then I cried and kissed him. Tell me one thing. One thing, he said, as though it all depended upon me. My wife, my children. My wife will die of grief. And though my children won't lose their rank and property, they'll be convicts' children, and forever. And what a memory, what a memory of me I shall leave in their hearts. I said nothing. And to part from them, to leave them forever. It's forever, you know. Forever. I sat still and repeated a silent prayer. I got up at last. I felt afraid. Well, he looked at me. Go, I said. Confess. Everything passes. Only the truth remains. Your children will understand, when they grow up, the nobility of your resolution. He left me that time as though he had made up his mind. Yet for more than a fortnight afterwards he came to me every evening, still preparing himself, still unable to bring himself to the point. He made my heart ache. One day he would come determined and say fervently, I know it will be heaven for me. I want to suffer. I will take my punishment and begin to live. You can pass through the world doing wrong, but there's no turning back. Now I dare not love my neighbor, nor even my own children. Good God, my children will understand perhaps what my punishment has cost me and will not condemn me. God is not in strength, but in truth. All will understand your sacrifice, I said to him. If not at once, they will understand later, for you have served truth, the higher truth, not of the earth. And he would go away seeming comforted, but next day he would come again, bitter, pale, sarcastic. Every time I come to you, you look at me so inquisitively as though to say, he has still not confessed. Wait a bit. Don't despise me too much. It's not such an easy thing to do as you would think. Perhaps I shall not do it at all. You, you won't go and inform against me then, will you? And far from looking at him with indiscreet curiosity, I was afraid to look at him at all. I was quite ill from anxiety, and my heart was full of tears. I could not sleep that night. I have just come from my wife, he went on. Do you understand what the word wife means? 
When I went out, the children called to me, "'Good-bye, father. Make haste back to read the children's magazine with us.' No, you don't understand that. No one is wise from another man's woe. His eyes were glittering, his lips were twitching. Suddenly he struck the table with his fist so that everything on it danced. It was the first time he had done such a thing. He was such a mild man. But need I? he exclaimed. Must I? No one has been condemned. No one has been sent to Siberia in my place. The man died of fever, and I've been punished by my sufferings for the blood I shed. And I shan't be believed. They, they won't believe my proofs. Need I confess? Need I? I am ready to go on suffering all my life for the blood I have shed, if only my wife and children may be spared. Will it be just to ruin them with me? Aren't we making a mistake? What is right in this case? And will people recognize it? Will they appreciate it? Will they respect it? Good Lord, I thought to myself, he is thinking of other people's respect at such a moment. And I felt so sorry for him then, that I believe I could have shared his fate if I could have comforted him. I saw he was beside himself. I was aghast, realizing with my heart as well as my mind what such a resolution meant. Decide my fate, he exclaimed again. Go and confess, I whispered to him. My voice failed me but I whispered it firmly. I took up the New Testament from the table, the Russian translation, and showed him the Gospel of St. John, chapter 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I had just been reading that verse when he came in. He read it. That's true he said. He smiled bitterly. It's terrible, the things you find in those books, he said, after a pause. It's easy enough to trust them upon one. And who wrote them? Can they have been written by men? The Holy Spirit wrote them, said I. It's easy for you to prate, he smiled again, this time almost with hatred. I took the book again, opened it to another place, and showed him the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31. He read, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He read it and simply flung down the book. He was trembling all over. An awful text, he said. There's no denying you've picked out fitting ones. He rose from the chair. Well, he said, Goodbye. Perhaps I shan't come again. We shall meet in heaven. So I have been for fourteen years in the hands of a living God, and that's how one must think of those fourteen years. Tomorrow I will beseech those hands to let me go. I wanted to take him in my arms and kiss him, but I did not dare. His face was contorted and somber. He went away. Good God, I thought. What has he gone to face? I fell on my knees before the icon and wept for him before the Holy Mother of God, our swift defender and helper. I was half an hour praying in tears, and it was late, about midnight. Suddenly I saw the door open and he came in again. I was surprised. Where have you been? I asked him. I think, he said, I've forgotten something. My handkerchief, I think. 
Well, even if I've not forgotten anything, let me stay a little. He sat down. I stood over him. You sit down, too, said he. I sat down. He sat still for two minutes. He looked intently at me and suddenly smiled. I remembered that. Then he got up, embraced me warmly, and kissed me. Remember, he said, how I came to you a second time. Do you hear? Remember it. And he went out. Tomorrow, I thought. And so it was. I did not know that evening that the next day was his birthday. I had not been out for the last few days, so I had no chance of hearing it from anyone. On that day he always had a great gathering. Everyone in the town went to it. It was the same this time. After dinner, he walked into the middle of the room with a paper in his hand, a formal declaration to the chief of his department, who was present. This declaration he read aloud to the whole assembly. It contained the full account of the crime, in every detail. I cut myself off from men as a monster. God has visited me, he said in conclusion. I want to suffer for my sin. Then he brought out and laid on the table all the things he had been keeping for fourteen years, that he had thought would prove his crime. The jewels belonging to the murdered woman which he had stolen to divert suspicion. A cross and a locket taken from her neck with the portrait of her betrothed in the locket. Her notebook and two letters one from her betrothed, telling her that he would soon be with her, and her unfinished answer left on the table to be sent off next day. He carried off these letters. What for? Why had he kept them for fourteen years afterwards instead of destroying them as evidence against him? And this is what happened. Everyone was amazed and horrified. Everyone refused to believe it and thought he was deranged, though all listened with intense curiosity. A few days later, it was fully decided and agreed in every house that the unhappy man was mad. The legal authorities could not refuse to take the case up, but they too dropped it. Though the trinkets and letters made them ponder, they decided that even if they did turn out to be authentic, no charge could be based on those alone. Besides, she might have given him those things as a friend, or asked him to take care of them for her. I heard afterwards, however, that the genuineness of the things was proved by the friends and relations of the murdered woman, and that there was no doubt about them. Yet nothing was destined to come of it, after all. Five days later, all had heard that he was ill, and that his life was in danger. The nature of his illness I can't explain. They said it was an affection of the heart. But it became known that the doctors had been induced by his wife to investigate his mental condition also, and had come to the conclusion that it was a case of insanity. I betrayed nothing, though people ran to question me. But when I wanted to visit him, I was for a long while forbidden to do so, above all by his wife. It's you who have caused his illness, she said to me. He was always gloomy, but for the last year people noticed that he was particularly excited and did strange things. You have been the ruin of him. Your preaching has brought him to this. For the last month he was always with you. Indeed, not only his wife, but the whole town were down upon me and blamed me. It's all your doing, they said. I was silent and indeed rejoiced at heart, for I saw plainly God's mercy to the man who had turned against himself 
and punished himself. I could not believe in his insanity. They let me see him at last. He insisted upon saying goodbye to me. I went into him and saw at once that not only his days, but his hours were numbered. He was weak, yellow, his hands trembled, he gasped for breath, but his face was full of tender and happy feeling. It is done, he said. I've long been yearning to see you. Why didn't you come? I did not tell him that they would not let me see him. God has had pity on me, and is calling me to himself. I know I am dying, but I feel joy and peace for the first time after so many years. There was heaven in my heart from the moment I had done what I had to do. Now I dare to love my children and to kiss them. Neither my wife, nor the judges, nor anyone has believed it. My children will never believe it either. I see that in God's mercy to them. I shall die, and my name will be without a stain for them. And now I feel God near. My heart rejoices as in heaven. I have done my duty. He could not speak. He gasped for breath. He pressed my hand warmly, looking fervently at me. We did not talk for long. His wife kept peeping in at us. But he had time to whisper to me, Do you remember how I came back to you that second time at midnight? I told you to remember it. You know what I came back for? I came to kill you. I started. I went out from you then into the darkness. I wandered about the streets, struggling with myself. And suddenly I hated you so that I could hardly bear it. Now, I thought, he is all that binds me, and he is my judge. I can't refuse to face my punishment tomorrow, for he knows all. It was not that I was afraid you would betray me. I never even thought of that. But I thought, how can I look him in the face if I don't confess? And if you had been at the other end of the world but alive, it would have been all the same. The thought was endurable that you were alive, knowing everything and condemning me. I hated you as though you were the cause, as though you were to blame for everything. I came back to you then, remembering that you had a dagger lying on your table. I sat down and asked you to sit down, and for a whole minute I pondered. If I had killed you, I should have been ruined by that murder, even if I had not confessed the other. But I didn't think about that at all. I didn't want to think of it at that moment. I only hated you, and longed to revenge myself on you for everything. The Lord vanquished the devil in my heart. But let me tell you, you were never nearer death. A week later he died. The whole town followed him to the grave. The chief priests made a speech full of feeling. All lamented the terrible illness that had cut short his days. But all the town was up in arms against me after the funeral, and people even refused to see me. Some, at first a few, and afterwards more, began indeed to believe in the truth of his story. And they visited me, and questioned me with great interest and eagerness, for man loves to see the downfall and disgrace of the righteous. But I held my tongue, and very shortly after I left the town, and five months later, by God's grace, I entered the safe and blessed path praising the unseen finger which had guided me so clearly to it. But I remember in my prayer to this day the servant of God, Mihail, who suffered so greatly.
End of chapter 2 of Book 6 Recording by Bob Neufeld